listeners, and welcome to a Unions 21 podcast special with me, Simon Sapper. As the President of the United States pays us a visit, we talk with Damon Silvers, Director of Policy and Special Counsel at the AFL-CIO, America's TUC. In a 2013 article, the Washington Post asked, can Damon Silvers save organised labour? That question is even more important today than six years ago. The Trump era has unleashed a hostile environment against organised labour in the US. In the so-called right-to-work states, collective bargaining has been systematically undermined. The Janus ruling, featured in one of our previous podcasts, was designed to strike a fatal blow to union finances. Private sector union density remains stubbornly low. Yet, I found Damon in optimistic mood, highlighting strike activity and community organising as positive signs in a difficult climate. He also makes the case for organised labour being a guardian of democracy itself. Along the way, we also tip our hats to the work of author Edward Bellamy and filmmaker Robert Zemeckis. What's the connection between Bellamy and Zemeckis and unions in the 21st century? And is that Washington Post article true? Have a listen and decide for yourself. So, listeners, I'm delighted uh, to welcome Damon Silvers to the podcast. Damon, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Simon. And, uh, listeners, Damon is the Director of Policy for the AFL-CIO, which is the American Federation of Labour Congress of Industrial Organisations. And, I mean, that's that. I mean, we think of union density in the US as being even lower than we have here in the UK. But, I mean, in, in terms of numbers and the size and scope of the AFL... Damon, what's, what sort of numbers are we talking about? Well, the, the, um, the AFL-CIO is, is a federation like the, uh, like the TUC here mm-hmm, in the UK, mm-hmm. and uh, we have approximately 12.5 million members, wow. and we have, in addition to that, uh, we have retirees and, and, uh, and affiliated uh, and various sorts of affiliated bodies, uh, so our membership is in certain ways uh, slightly larger than that. We're not technically the largest membership organization in the United States, uh, but in terms of the depth of the involvement of our members in their unions, I think we're the the labor movement remains. Uh, uh, really, the most consequential a- aspect of U.S. civil society—a a sort of qu- quali- quality over quantity in some regards. Well, yeah, well, both we have both quality and quantity. Absolutely, <laughs> the best—the best way it could be. And, and I mean, as di- director of policy, I mean, as a lot of people, it's a huge geographical area, a huge range of issues. I mean, what? I mean, what's an ordin- ordinary day look like, or isn't there one? <laughs> right. Well, at the moment, my ordinary day is that I'm on sabbatical here in the United Kingdom, at the University of London, working on some of the issues that you and I are talking about, but. Um, Back in Washington, my role as director of policy was to, uh, you know, oversee uh, work with a team of of experts on different issues, uh, and advise the elected leaders of the labor movement. You know, we were kind of, uh, we are kind of uh, the in-house think tank, uh, right, uh, right. Uh, uh, for the American labor movement. We're not policy to, uh, in the way we do things. It's not, it's not lobbying. We have, we have, we have people who are good at that who are lobbyists, and uh, and it's not political action. Right, it's it's the ideas that we're trying to drive uh, th- through uh, the political process, and you know it, it's really important. What makes the labor movement uh, really, in many respects, uh, unique is the degree to which you know our expertise is at the service of people who are elected. Uh, the president of the AFL-CIO is is you know is the elected representative of more than twelve million people that 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 puts him right up there with with the governors of our largest states in For terms sure. of in terms of um, democratic accountability. 
So, and I, I think sometimes we feel here in the UK that we don't do enough strategic work, that our spend, if you like, on, on R&D, if you like, is just, is just like pathetically low. So, so to hear that there is a very conscious and deliberate centre for strategic thought is, it sounds to me like a very positive uh, I mean, certainly, thing. Um, certainly uh, we at the AFL-CIO feel that, that having both in, in our policy function and with our, uh, our political team, which has a very deep uh, data and analytic capacity, and, uh, and, and in, our, in our organizing team, uh, that we have, uh, within the labor movement, a unique set of, uh, of resources to, to address the problem of workers' uh, inadequate bargaining power. Uh, in our society, which is really the the problem. Well, absolutely, and and I mean, even though we've been talking, and I think justifiably in positive terms about the dynamics of the AFL CIO, twelve and a half million members equates to about eleven and a half percent of the U.S. workforce, and of course, there is a, a desperate political situation in the U.S. for anyone of a progressive mind, with with a, 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 a yeah a rampant and out of control reactionary to the core presidential team. Okay, the Democrats are now in charge of one half of Congress, but it's still, you know, it's still an uphill battle. In such a difficult environment, what are the grounds for optimism? What is the AFL-CIO able to do to, to hold back uh, even further attacks on working people? Well, uh, f- first, I mean, like the TUC, right? We're f- the AFLCI was a federation of unions. Um, what we are able to do is really what our affiliates are, are able to come together to want to do. Uh, we we're sort of the collective. We, we are a, a kind of collective action of collective action. And, in, and in, indeed, you know, each individual union is is busy organizing, bargaining, uh, uh, giving voice to its membership in in, uh, in its sectors. The, the AFL-CIO is, the, is where those unions come together to act collectively on issues of common concern. Yeah. But I think we see this current moment as one not so much of, 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 of defense uh, as of offense. And uh, that may be a surprise um, in a lot of ways because, as you said, the labor movement in the United States, the, the, there are a couple of unions that are not, out, that are not in the AFL-CIO, mm-hmm, some mm-hmm. fairly large ones. Uh, and... The labor movement as a whole in the United States has about 16 million members. Right. Uh, and that is, as you said, about 11% of the, uh, a little more than 11% of the American workforce. In absolute numbers, uh, the labor movement uh, is not that much smaller than it has, has ever been. Right. Uh, and some unions today um, have never been bigger. But as a percentage of the workforce, the American labor movement has been in steady decline since the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Yet, right now, we see more collective action, more strike activity, more, att- more efforts at innovation uh, within the labor movement than I think we have seen uh, in many decades, uh, going back at least, uh, in, I think, looked at it in total, going back at least to the 1970s. And these efforts are winning. You know, in the 1980s, there were a lot of strikes, but most of them were lost. In the last year, we've seen successful strikes in the private sector at Stop and Shop, just concluded la- just mm-hmm. one last mm-hmm. week, uh, at Marriott, uh, in the public sector, uh, lo- very large-scale statewide teacher strikes in conservative states where, where, te- where public sector unions have been weak and public sector bargaining is, in a number of cases, illegal. Nonetheless, we've seen, you know, very successful large-scale strikes and strike activity in total 
uh, is higher in the United States today than it has been in decades. And yet it doesn't translate into increased membership. Well, it translates... We have seen various, as you mentioned a moment or two ago, we've seen very serious legal and political attacks on the labor movement. Um, the most recent was the Supreme Court's decision in the Janus case. Yes, indeed, uh, which we've covered on a previous podcast, right. listeners, as you'll recall. And it turns out, though, that at least the initial data suggests that in this environment of, of increased uh, worker militancy and worker activism, in this environment, the Janus case has not affected public sector union membership very much at all. Um, well, that's certainly our, good some, news. Some public sector unions have grown. Um, others have, have, have held steady. Right now, pub, the public sector represents roughly half of the membership of the American mm-hmm. labor movement. And we saw just a very small downturn in overall union membership in the most recent data, which supports, I think, the, 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 other, the internal data we've seen that suggests that um, public sector workers when given the opportunity to just walk, you know, to be free, mm. ri- to be free riders, have turned it down. That people and that that, that uh, union members understand uh, the the power and collective action. I, I suppose, Damon, one thing that that does occur to me is that often where you have a, a kind of collective voice from a series of collective voices, as as you've sort of described the the AFL, sometimes it can become lowest common denominator rather than top end facilitation, and sometimes the most innovative organizations grow up outside those structures. Um, is, that, is, that a, is that a risk? Is that a problem? Is that inevitable? Well, <laughs> I think that we've seen over the years that unions really need a place to come together and act together as a group. And that's what the AFL-CIO is. Right. Uh, we, are no, we are nothing more than the... The, the collective desire of our member unions to act as one. I, I, I think behind your question is a really important question about what types of innovation should there be among workers' organizations. And I think there are, there's a long history, as I sort of said earlier, of, of, mm. of changing structures for unions. Right. I think there's there's a couple things that unions really have to be to be to to, to get the job done to to, yeah. to be real representatives of working people and they need to be they need to have uh, self sufficiency in funding they can't be dependent ultimately uh, on outside funders and particularly not on on essentially employers or wealthy people right, right? Okay. They, they have to be funded by them by working people themselves secondly they have to be democratic they have to there has to be accountability for their leaders directly you know to their members mm. and thirdly they have to be real instruments of of bargaining power they they can't be the the outsourced hr function even though they may do some things that uh you know they may, may provide benefits for mm. example but they can't fundamentally be uh, just a kind of auxiliary of the employer, or or just a or just a political instrument. They they really have to be instruments of independent economic power uh, on the part of their members in the workplace. And the thing about that is is that that is um, that uh, is tough, right? It is hard to uh, actually ex- you know uh, uh, deliver economic value uh, for working people in the teeth of employers. Uh, and, uh, and and financial actors uh, who want to hold it all, who want to hold all the money for themselves. It's a lot easier to do a variety of other things, but 
But it's only when unions are able to do that economic job mm. uh, that, that, that they're worth a damn. And, and I think you see that right now in the United States, the kind of energy and power that comes from effectively doing that, right? Whether, those are, whether that's teachers or, or hotel workers or, or, or grocery store workers, uh, that, when, that, that when working people are able to flex their muscle in, you know, on the job, in their, in their paycheck, uh, that that's what, really, uh, that's what really gives people a sense of, of agency uh, and, and dignity and power. But do you think also that there's a bit of a, a zeitgeist, if you like, that's, that, that, that's coming back to the view that things are just not fair, things are just mm-hmm. not right, and that's kind of, that's perhaps driving militancy, or, or it's not militancy to stick up for your rights, but, but you know, it's relative militant, militancy, without it necessarily flowing through into membership of structures that are perhaps seen as a little bit distant or out of touch. I think that what we're seeing right now is that in the context, in the context of what is close to full employment in the United States, um, as a result, that's the result of uh, a real revolution in thinking by the Federal Reserve. Right? In mm-hmm. an environment of full employment, working people start to feel that they have some power and some choices. Yeah, and that and that what is and that what is. Uh, in the terms of a textile boss that I once uh, knew, in, instead of this attitude, instead of sort of feeling like, well, whatever, however, however unfair my job is, I just got to suck it up. That you feel that you've got choices, and, and increasingly, one choice that America's workers seem to be uh, seem to realize they have is to organize and to strike when they're being treated unfairly. Right. And the key unfairness here is is um, that wages in the United States have been largely stagnant for a generation, even as we've seen vast increases in productivity and vast increases in the net wealth and income of the society as a whole. It's just flowed to the top 10%. Yeah. And for some uh, working people, uh, or I should say for many, uh, this environment of wage stagnation has been really uh, punitive. Um, and so we see, uh, again, in, in the teacher strikes of in the last year, teachers coming forward and saying, you know, I have to I have to work two and three jobs in order to be able to yeah. afford to teach. Yeah. I, I, I'm paying my grocery bills by giving blood. I mean, you know, scandalous kinds of stuff, uh, but, which, but which is not, a, but, but which is uh, what you would expect to see if, if people haven't seen raises in 10 years. Well, for sure. I mean, we're the same in the UK as well. Uh, people, who, the in-work poverty is, is increasing. Frequently you hear of people saying, well, I can choose to eat or heat the house. Uh, right. and, and yet we have... You know, pay levels here in the UK have not recovered beyond their pre-crash 2000, 2008 levels. We've got a really tight labour market in the UK, as you have in the US, and yet we don't see an increase in union membership. We don't see particularly an increase in, in, in militancy. And the whole notion of wage-led improvements in productivity is just, it's not accepted as mainstream at all, at all even though... You could argue if labor is too cheap, then no one will invest in it. So you're never going to get productivity rises. So I'm really interested to see how, to, to, to look at how things can contrast across the, across the Atlantic, as it were, and particularly the initiatives that the AFL-CIO, working with its affiliates, of course, has, has started to take to, to update the, the membership offer, I suppose. So, you know, we've... Uh the FLCIO initiated after our last convention um, a, a process looking at the future of work and of unions together with our affiliates. Uh, that process is ongoing today, 
it's been it's been a very enlightening process uh, on several levels. We we made a huge effort to reach out to the academic community. We engaged some unlikely uh, advisors uh, for the labor movement. Un unlikely, why? Well, uh, I mean, for example, we invited some of the experts on the future of work from the management consulting firm McKinsey to come mm, talk to us. Interesting. Okay. Um, uh, which they were kind enough to do. We had faculty from Harvard Business School involved, uh, from Carnegie Mellon's Artificial Intelligence Lab, team of, pe uh, of people involved at MIT, both on the IT side of future of work questions and on the, the sort of uh, sociological workplace side. And then, and then obviously we engaged with, uh, with our affiliates. We had yeah. um, the, the commission itself is made up of uh, the elected leaders of, of, the, of, of, of different sectors of the labor movement. We asked a set of questions that started with essentially what do we see as the as the long-term trends in the economy just not just in the united states but globally what is the, what are the implications of that for the workplace and then what does that mean for for both for individual mm -hmm. unions and for the and for the federation as yeah. a whole now that process is ongoing and so i'm not i can't tell you what the answers are but i can tell you that with that that in the meetings we held a number of which were public meetings with experts um, a couple of things came came mm -hmm. across very strongly uh, one is is that despite some of the doom and gloom that one reads about the future of work, that really um, profound technological change is nothing new. Uh, it's a constant feature of modern life. Um, by the way, it's, that's something that I'm that's an area that I'm I'm working on here uh, during my sabbatical. Right. Uh, technological change is nothing new. It doesn't make work go away, even though. It can affect huge numbers of jobs. It doesn't make work go away. In general, through human, through modern history, it's actually in increased the amount of work. Uh, what it does do is change work, and it, ch it changes the, the the composition of work. And it's very hard in advance to see the nature of the of the new jobs that will be created. Uh, the, one thing that stuck with me from these conversations was uh, an economist said, "You know, if you could have, uh, if you had perfect." Uh, a vision into the future in the year 1800 and you were asked and you were asked well how many jobs that exist in 1800 will exist in 1900 uh, the answer would have been uh, that, that um, uh, the majority of the jobs that existed in 1800 would not exist in 1900 right and, yeah. and it, the majority of jobs that existed in 1800 would not exist in 1900 now if you were writing in the spirit of much of the journalism one hears these days you would view, you view that as the as the sign of the apocalypse. Yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is kind of yeah, kind of right. apocalyptic. Right. The, the, um, the, if yeah. imagine we said you know in, in thirty years the majority of jobs that exist today will not exist. Yeah. Right. But the but the, but the fact of course is but the the hidden fact in this is that in nineteen hundred there were ten times as many jobs in the United States as there were in eighteen hundred. Yes. Yes. Right. Indeed. Right. And so, for starters. For starters, the the basic message we got out of this is there's likely work is likely to continue to be central to human life um, <clears throat> in the future. Most jobs that exist today are actually likely to exist 30, 20 or 30 years from now, but they will change. They, the <clears throat> the way technology is used within those jobs will will change, and the the clear implication of this is that the labor movement needs to change too. And it's not the first time the labor movement's needed to change. U unions are not, unions aren't, the, the word union doesn't refer to a fixed thing. 
And we have unions today uh, in the American labor movement. I think that's probably, this is also probably true in the, in the British labor movement. We have unions today whose basic organizational form and culture uh, is the product of craft traditions that are 200 years old. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We have unions that were formed in the context of the sort of high intensity phase of the industrial, uh, different moments in the industrial revolution. Uh, they're, they're, they're unions that are really the product of mass production in the mid 20th century. They're unions that are the product of the social service uh, expansion after the Second World War and, and, are, and were forged in the social movements of the 1960s. Uh, every labor organization is in a reflection, every successful labor organization is a reflection in really important ways of the culture of, of the workplaces where their members uh, work and the, the, the ways their members connect with each other and, and, and what they value about their work. We need very much right now to see that type of innovation around new types of work. It's not, it's, it's not just that we need growth in the labor movement in order to right the injustices we were talking yeah. about earlier. Yeah. It's that we need innovation so that the labor movement is reflective of the work experience of a new generation of workers. And, and that is, that's the core debate, as you say. It's not a new debate for, for unions or all membership organizations between servicing and, uh, and organizing. We need to grow, but we need to, we need to make sure our organizing offer is effective and, and on point, uh, as it were. I suppose... Already one can see from the AFL-CIO's project, if you've got all the stakeholders to sit around the table and agree an agenda, actually that's, that's no mean achievement in itself. So the key thing is, the key thing is then kind of what happens, what happens next as, the, uh, as a, a draft programme of work reaches its first iteration and, and hopefully, hopefully everyone is still on board. Yeah, well, I mean, I, so far, I mean, we feel like it's been a very positive, a very positive process. I think one of the big challenges here is that it, it's it's hard. It, it's not it, it, it's um, it's one thing to be able to analyze the present and discuss trends. It's another thing to be able to prescribe the future. If we had been having a futures process at our predecessor organization, the American Federation of Labor, in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. which was another period like this of kind of, of institutional crisis yes. within, within the labor movement. If we'd had a process like that in the 1920s, uh, would that process have been able to identify exactly how the United Auto Workers and the United Steel Workers or the Teamsters would come into being in, 10 years later and what kinds of organizations they would be? I, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I think that the challenge that we face is the challenge not of being able to predict, predict and define with precision exactly what the future will be, uh, but the challenge of being open to what it turns out it will be. I would agree. I would agree. We, because we can predict the future with no greater reliability than, than um, I, know, I was about to say, than the surfer can predict the next wave. But now the surfing community will tell me you're wrong about that, Simon. <laughs> You've never been on a surfboard in your life, clearly. But, right. but, but it's, an, it's an imprecise. I mean, our discussion has brought to mind a book I read a long, long time ago by a guy called Edward Bellamy, writer at the end of the, yes. end of the 1800s. Looking backwards. Looking backwards right. when, he, when he projected 110 <clears throat> years into the future. And, and of course, you read that from, a, from the perspective of today and you see how limited how necessarily limited that sort of exercise 
exercise is. So, that, so therefore, you're right, we need to be agile and, and flexible enough to be able to work with the future rather than, uh, yeah. rather than against it. Well, yeah, although I can't resist pointing out that sometimes people predict the future when they have no intention of doing so. I was really uh, amazed to discover that um, when I was on an airplane recently watching uh, uh, somewhat, un- <laughs> not one of the world's great movies, but Back to the Future 2. Uh, yes. And, and, and I thought to myself, the villain in this movie seems a lot like Donald Trump. And, and uh, Yeah, you don't, I haven't seen that movie for ages, <laughs> but you're right. You are right. My and, goodness. And not only is that, tr- not only do you have the same reaction I did, but I went and Googled it, and it turned out that the screen the screenwriter had intended that, <gasps> uh, and, and he'd intended uh, and he he had imagined um, what this sort of archetypal American city would be like if Donald Trump was in charge, and, and oh and, boy, and he'd written, <laughs> and he'd written that in 1988. And so uh, sometimes you know, predicting the future can be a, a strange business, but but uh, but I. I um, I want to just come back to, mm. the, to the, this question about the, the, the future of the labor movement and talk for a minute about why it's so important. Uh, yes, the future, the future of the labor movement in an era of instability, hostile environment, Donald Trump and, and so on. Please, please do. Yeah, well, we have in the... We, and this is a larger question than the United States. The, 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 the global economy um, has been structured for the for the last generation or so since 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 the 1980s to uh, suppress wages and uh this is a this was a radical departure from the way that uh the the from the way the post-war order was set up and we have essentially as a consequence reproduced many of the kinds of political and social problems and economic problems that the world faced in the run-up to world war ii and the, the core problem is that when people work harder and harder and yet get nowhere, uh, they start to lose faith in the, the, the governance mechanisms of their societies. For sure. And that both, that both destabilizes democracy and it, and it makes it very difficult to solve large problems. Demo- democracies, uh, democracies that um, I think many of us take for granted have to, in fact, be defended all the time. And the large problems that we face in, in every society right now around the world, problems of how do we manage technology, problems around the problem of climate change, the problem of aging societies in the developed world, these kinds of problems require functioning, require democracies that can make decisions and that, pe- and that working people have confidence in. Strong labor movements are both both essential to making sure that that our economies function properly, that that we have wage-led that we have wage-led growth, uh, that we don't need to rely on unsustainable debt structures and this kind of thing, and they're also essential to making sure that that democracies are really democracies, that 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 working people have voice uh, in, in 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 what happens, and that it and that and that democracies are not just uh, facades behind which a handful of wealthy people run everything. And um, I think we've seen in different ways uh, how, how a global economy structured to repress wages turns into a politics of plutocracy, a politics where, where, where a, a small number of people actually control everything behind the, 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 behind the appearances of, uh, of democracy 
and how that, that opens the door for profoundly undemocratic forces. That opens the door for authoritarians and for people looking to organize politics around hate. Uh, and, and so when we're talking about, when you and I are talking about the question of revitalizing labor movements, we're not just talking about the question of whether workers will be paid, uh, paid fairly, treated fairly on the job. We're talking about the question of whether or not um, democracies can survive and can make the kinds of decisions and undertake the kinds of uh, important projects, like, for example, fighting climate change, that, that are absolutely essential to all of us and our children and grandchildren having good lives. Damon Silvers, Director of Policy at FLCO, thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. I thought it was riveting stuff, really. Uh, I particularly like Damon's uh, absolute certainty of unions as a force for good. Uh, and it's proof, isn't it, that despite all the things we're going to hear in the media in the coming days, uh, the Trump view of America is not the only view of America, just as the Trump view of the world is not the only view of the world. And thank heavens for that, I think we would all say. If you want to find out more about what the AFL-CIO is doing, you can visit their website, which is www.aflcio.org. If you want to find out more about what we're doing in Unions 21, you can visit our website, which is www.unions21.org.uk. If you'd like to join the discussion, tell us what you think of this podcast, tell us what you think we should be covering in future podcasts, please email us, info at unions21.org.uk. We'd love to hear your views. We want you to be part of the discussion. You can tweet us at unions21. And if you're listening to this on the podcasting platform of your choice, which I guess most of you will be, then please rate us and share widely. Leave us a comment as well if you want. That's all for this special edition of the Unions 21 podcast. It's been my pleasure to have you along for the last half hour or so. We hope you will join us for our next podcast. Uh, Until we meet again in cyberspace, this is me, Simon Sapper, saying thanks for listening and goodbye. The Unions 21 podcast was presented by Simon Sapper. It was a Makes You Think production.